Welcome to the India Energy R podcast. I'm Shreya Jay, energy and climate change reporter with Business Standard. I, along with Dr. Sandeep Pai, energy transition researcher from the University of British Columbia, co-host this podcast, which has received acclaim, critiques, suggestions, and most of all, a loving acceptance from our listeners. This is a special day for us. We are releasing our 10th episode today. When we started in January this year, we did foresee reaching this milestone, but we did not imagine the heights we will reach so soon. We are rated number one in the Apple podcast list of science podcasts in India. According to Listen Notes, our listener score in just five months of our existence has made it to the top 10% of all podcasts across the globe. We have close to 2,500 listeners per episode across platforms. We are grateful to our esteemed listeners. I would like to take a moment to thank our guests who obliged us with their presence on our show. Vinay Rastoki, our first guest and a renewable historian no less. Dr. Rohit Chandra, the best storyteller on coal there is. Swati D'Souza, our dynamic voice on sustainable energy. Anil Swaroop, one of the most frank bureaucrats we have met. Sumant Banerjee, a car expert with the choicest tales. Dr. Navroz Dubash, India's most balanced voice on climate change. Dr. Hisham Zarifi and Shalu Agarwal, who took a leaf out of their own life and work to talk about energy access. Sunil Jain, a renewable veteran with an enviable passion. And Vijaya Ramchandran, whose work and words inspire beyond wonder. With such a decorated list of speakers, we traverse across coal, gas, clean energy, climate change, energy access, electric vehicles, and much more. With each episode, we learn so much more than we ever knew. And we really hope you all did too. So as we cross this milestone today, we have a special episode to offer. We are turning the tables. Today with us is Mayank Agarwal, contributing editor, Mongabay India. Mayank is one of the best writers on environment and climate change in India, whose work has been a trailblazer. Mayank will be the host of the India Energy R podcast today. He will interview Sandeep Pai on his recently published dissertation on just transition and talk about the unique data set that Sandeep used and the groundwork he did to underline the challenges of jumping from fossil fuel to clean energy in developing economies. Welcome to the show, Mayank. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you, Shreya, for having me over and uh, for inviting me. It's it's an honor to be here with you people. I have loved your work. I have loved all the episodes uh, that you people have come out so far. Before you take up the host mantle, Mayank, can you tell us about yourself? Where are you from? What did you study? How did you land up in journalism and also then decided to specifically cover uh, environment issues? I was born in Delhi and uh, all my studies, everything happened in Delhi, including my school, uh, college, everything. I did my graduation in journalism and mass communication. In I started in 2003. While I was in third year of my college, I did one internship as a statesman. And fortunately, I was absorbed when I was in the third year itself. So my third year went simultaneously with my job. And that is how I became a journalist in 2005. And uh, while working, I also did my master's in international relations. So that is a little about my studies. But yes, there is an interesting story indeed about how I became a journalist. So I was a science student. And... uh, I wanted to do robotics and astrophysics as engineering arm, but somehow that never happened. I never got into the top colleges which were offering these courses. So 
when I gave my entrance examinations after 12th class, I gave six engineering entrance examinations and one uh, mass communication entrance examination. And why I did that? Because news is something that has been always very close to me. When I used to go to school, uh, so I used to ensure that no matter I am reaching late or early to the school, I used to ensure that I read the newspapers every single day before going to uh, school. And uh, civics, history, all uh, the social sciences uh, department was always one of my favorites. So somehow that that media and that writing thing was always very close to me, even though my writing was pathetic that time. And I still consider that it is not great up to the moment <laughs> as it is required. But yes, that 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 feeling of uh, or that thing about expressing myself in words was always there, was, was always very strong. And I think that actually uh, led me or took me to journalism. Because another thing that actually was the reason was that I really enjoy conversations and uh, learning new things. And uh, for me, media was also one of those avenues to do that. I started journalism and uh, like a lot of reporters, a lot of people, I started with the city beats and I used to cover city crime, city politics, city administration. And uh, But it, is, it was sometime in 2010 when I joined DNA that I actually started looking at environmental issues uh, because like a lot of organizations, environmental issues were not considered the top-notch beat or was was like, it was not the beat, sort of the beat for anyone. So it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, you keep doing it. <laughs> and that is how I started. But what has uh, changed or how uh, a couple of people in my life helped me change that perception was when they repeatedly like I am there and the to be honest and the credit goes to my editors for that because a lot of people like those two three people they actually inspired me to uh, look at environment not as a niche subject but as something that intersects with every single possible thing in our like, daily lives whether it is business whether it is politics whether it is technology whether it is the infra no matter what it is environment is there uh, at some form of intersection and that has always, always been like my foundation for looking at those stories. So even though I started looking at environment, say 2010, 11, it was in 2013, 14 that this Eureka happened. And that is how uh, my perspective for environment journalism as a niche or as a mainstream subject changed. Because after that, I tried connecting every single story of mine. Uh, sometimes I was successful, sometimes I was not. But I tried connecting every single story that I was doing with some form, one one thing or another, whether it was some like army asking for land, anything. It has been an inter- interesting journey so far, to be honest. And uh, I like what I do. In fact, there was a bad time also when, not bad time, there was a low time also when I was looking at leaving journalism, to be honest. But yes, the past few years with Bangabe has changed that. The way I have been able to express myself in, uh, on subjects that I wanted to write on, uh, the way I wanted to cover things. All my organizations, uh, wherever I have done environment journalism or other things, has been helpful. But yeah, I give special credit. Like I've learned every, every, from every organization. I have honed uh, the kind of work that I want to do. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mayank. Over to you now. The show is all yours. Thank you, Shreya. Thank you, Sandeep, for giving me this opportunity. Before uh, I ask Sandeep to give a small introduction about himself, I wanted to tell the listeners one interesting thing. So when I was in DNA, 
in 2011 that is when i came to know uh, that is uh, the year when i first uh, spoke to sandeep sandeep had just joined as a young reporter and uh, he had become uh, the person go to person because of investigative skills and he with another reporter called gangadhar patel they were the crack team of dna and they were the like go to people and the editor and everyone used to look at their stories you know every now and then they used to come out with investigative stuff that is when i became friends with them and when i had gone to mumbai it was then i realized that these are not just great reporters they are great people as well and uh, fortunately uh, since then we have been very good friends i have learned a lot from him i have seen his transition uh, from a reporter to a researcher and now uh, a series a very serious uh, name in the just transition uh, field and i really really feel very proud of knowing him i really feel very encouraged that i have seen this transition i really enjoy that so sandeep uh, before i shoot uh, or i we start grilling you i just wanted to understand I just wanted to ask you if you can just give a small introduction, even though this is your show. I know. Yeah, thank thank you, Mike. That I think is a really generous introduction. I have also really loved interacting with you over the years. You know, I remember first we met in Mumbai and then in Delhi and then kept in touch, and it has really been great to be in touch and exchange ideas. Uh, you know, on various topics, uh, including more recently on just transitions. um so yeah it, it it has been really great i mean my story is you know like basically a story of many people from sort of like small town uh, india you know i grew up in jharkhand in ranchi and uh, that sort of you know went to a school and then immediately wanted to get out of ranchi and go somewhere else you know the destinations were bombay or delhi or uh, bangalore you know every sort of like pe- person when they grow up in small towns they have this desire to go and explore bigger cities and so you know after finishing my very average schooling record after 12th like i i don't remember how much exactly i had but i had like average scores i somehow cracked one engineering uh, like a government college sort of uh, engineering course in cochin Uh, where i didn't have to pay any fees because it was government uh, sort of like u- university um and so i went and did my four years of engineering i mean kerala was really transformative because while kerala is like you know really like it's a very progressive state um and so you get exposed to a lot of student politics you get exposed to a lot of social issues um you see a lot of harmony among people you know of various religion caste uh, and so on and so forth so i think in some ways my social and sort of like my social thinking was really shaped in kerala but when i finished my engineering i was just like this is not me i cannot see myself sitting and coding and you know uh, doing stuff in front of the computer i was again very interested in social issues my lens has been always like social change regardless of what i want to do or what uh, i mean if it, if i think about technology it's not for technology per se it's for can it help society can it help people and so on so then what happened is that i finished engineering and i did like one year of journalism course in bangalore with iijnm 
And as soon as I finished, you know, I got recruited to DNA. Uh, we had a common but wonderful editor, uh, Aditya Sina. He gave me an opportunity to work in this investigative team. Um, and that really helped shape who I am right now. Because that was a time he allowed me to travel the country. When coal scam happened in 2014, I was just like covering mine after mine after mine. I was traveling to Chhattisgarh, to Jharkhand, to various parts of the country. I was reporting on defense, environment. Um, of course, one of the things in the investigative team was that I didn't have to cover daily beats. So I was really fortunate. And so that allowed me to really take time and work on stories. And that is basically what I did. I worked on, you know, different stories. I, I learned a lot about RTI, how to file Right to Information Act applications uh, quite successfully in many, many cases. Uh, of course, not always, but, you know, there are methods and skills that one can deploy uh, to learn about, like, how, how to do Right to Information. So, so during journalism, through interactions with people, I, I learned about RTI, I also really enjoy talking to people, interviewing people. So one of the great things about journalism is that you're paid to learn every day. And, and so that was really amazing. And, you know, once I finished five, six years in journalism, I thought to myself that, you know, it would be a good time to go and learn a little bit more in a more structured way. So I applied to a few master's programs. Uh, I got into one uh, program, Erasmus program in Europe. Uh, so it was a very cool program. It went to like four different universities. Uh, so uh, the first semester I spent in Hungary. The second semester was in Greece. Third semester you spent in Sweden uh, and so on. And I wrote my thesis in California. And then once I finished your master's, I had this desire to do more work on energy transitions. And so, you know, I was thinking about different kinds of topics but somehow I sort of stumbled upon this topic uh, of just transition during my master's. Uh, and that's when I sort of co-wrote a book with my then girlfriend, now wife. And, and that really sort of sparked my interest in the topic of just transition. And then I took it uh, in a more structured way in my PhD. And I explored the topic further using more academic methods you know, using more uh, systematic way of exploration of these topics. And that's sort of like finished one or two months ago uh, when I submitted and defended my dissertation. And now finally, the dissertation is out there for the world to see. So yeah, that is kind of, you know, my journey. I don't know what I will cover in the future, but that has been sort of where what I've done so far. Thank you, Sandeep. Very interesting. Uh, I should tell one small uh insight. Sandeep is basically claiming that he somehow stumbled on the idea of energy transition. I feel that there is a lot of connection uh, to the work that he did at DNA. Because I remember some of the stories, uh, initial investigative stories that he did were from the coal belt of the country. And one way or another, when we generally say that our childhood impacts our whole life, so I think it is his life or it is an experience during that the first job that somehow left an impression on him. And because he also used to think from, from the social angle. So I think the the work that he has done so far and the work, work that we are going to talk about right now is actually a proper product of his time during college, what he learned or the impact that he had during college, the first job, the first few stories. Though we can debate what actually sparked his uh, 
interest, whether it was the girlfriend or whether it was all this interest. So, yeah, we can debate about that. But yes, I, I felt that there is a connection because I could see the whole trajectory from his stories on coal scam or coal problems uh, in the country to his work on now just transitions. So there's a huge arc. And like for me as an outsider, who is not Sandeep, but as his friend, I can see that arc. So yes, he, uh, he has done fabulous work and let's talk about it. So Sandeep, uh, we have done, Mongo Pindia has done a story on your dissertation and I'm so thankful for you to, so grateful that you shared that with us. But like for people who have, uh, who are not familiar with the concept or people who are still to grasp it, will you mind if you can just explain a little about your research? Will you, or just tell us about what your research is about and how you went about it? Yeah, great. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, essentially my dissertation focuses on broadly energy transition and, you know, how world can move away from fossil fuels such as coal, oil, gas to renewables. And if that technological transition, you know, infrastructure transition happens. The simple question is what happens to millions and millions of workers, fossil fuel workers, their communities, and entire regions. Uh, to, to say this more concretely, let's say in the Indian context, if, if you move away from coal, what happens to millions of workers, you know, millions of people who rely on coal for their livelihood States like Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, Telangana, which rely on government revenues, or sectors like railway, which sort of really deeply is subsidized by, uh, you know, continuation of the coal industry. Uh, so, so the question is like, it's a human sort of human dimension of energy transition, essentially focusing on what what really could be the alternatives of livelihoods and other dependencies uh, when we move away from fossil fuels. So that is sort of the broad framing of my dissertation. Uh, And within that, I sort of explored four different key independent topics. So the first topic was I reviewed the global literature on just transition. And I uh, did a review of academic papers primarily, but I also looked at some policy papers, you know, like, just transition task force reports of different companies. Uh, And it was a global review and came up with really like 17 key elements of just transition. So like if if one were to design a just transition, what would be some of the key elements? So some of the key elements would include things like retraining, you know, uh, things like making sure local government revenues are restored, if fossil fuels decline, uh, job transitions, uh, you know, making sure gender issues are properly addressed and so on and so forth. So came up with 17 elements and also conceptualized them uh, sort of in the form of spatial, temporal, uh, as well as justice forms. So that was my one independent chapter. The second and the third chapter really looks at, it's a more narrow focused chapters. They look at really employment transition between energy sources like coal, uh, and other uh, fossil fuels like coal, oil, gas, and new energy sources such as renewables. So can some of the people who are currently employed in the fossil fuel industry uh, be transitioned to renewable jobs? So the two chapters that are linked to this are, the first chapter 
kind of does a global review or it's a more global modeling study that essentially projects from now until 2050 what happens if the world were to meet 1.5 or well below 2 degree climate target so glo- globally world has set a target paris climate target of 1.5 degree and so if the world were to meet that what happens to energy sector jobs will there be more renewable jobs will there be less coal jobs what would that happen and how does it impact different regions of the world like india or china or us and so one of the innovations of that chapter was that i collected this really large data set which will, which will make public the paper has been accepted so it's going to come out in the next 10 days and then you will see another big twitter thread out of that so it's a really large 50 country data set which nobody else has collected and what i collected was for 11 energy technologies five job types and then we use those employment factors jobs per unit of energy and apply with an integrated assessment model and make these projections into the future and that dataset will be really really useful for future researchers so that's one aspect so one of the conclusions of that chapter is that yes there will be more renewable jobs going into the future and one of the caveats i must say that this is only looking at direct jobs although we can talk about it more in detail but there are many types of fossil fuel jobs but because of you know availability of data we only focused on direct jobs and we applied those direct jobs employment factors and then made projection now one of the conclusions big conclusions is that yes there will be more jobs globally although not true for every regions but let's say in a country like india or us there will be more renewable direct renewable jobs compared to the jobs that will be lost in the fossil fuel industry however that led to a question can you create some of these jobs locally right it's one thing to create these jobs at a national level and there will be more net jobs there will be more jobs but let's say you are creating nationally more jobs but all the jobs are in gujarat or karnataka but the job losses are happening in jharkhand and chatisgarh so will it be beneficial so then the next chapter in the next chapter i explored whether can you create some of those jobs locally and we only use two criteria and try to understand are there suitable solar or wind resources to create those jobs locally and what would be the scale of the job sort of like the installations that you have to do locally to absorb the existing workforce and that led to a conclusion that wind has no sort of like complete mismatch between where wind suitable wind resources are in the country in india's case compared to where the coal mining is happening although solar is suitable across sort of the coal belt however the scale of deployment that is required is huge uh, so you have to install something like 1000 gigawatts right now we have only 90 gigawatts of installation so i mean it's not that we won't need that kind of installations in the future we would but you have to install that much capacity in those regions in jharkhand and chatisgarh to absorb just the direct jobs and this story was same so this this chapter focused on china india us and australia and so this kind of story was similar wind had a complete mismatch around the world in all these countries while solar was good in india and australia like moderate in us about 60% but china the big story where all like 50% of coal production happens um 
you know, it was not suitable. Only 30% of the areas were suitable. Coal mining areas were suitable. So this sort of, you can conclude from this is that definitely not all fossil fuel workers can be absorbed locally. Uh, This was sort of the big conclusion emerging from this chapter. Those two chapters looked at the employment transition. The final one was more deeper and more close to home, uh, looking at India's uh, you know, socioeconomic dependency of coal. And one of the motivations was that people throw multiple, you know, solutions of, oh, you know, workers can migrate. Oh, you know, like we can use agriculture to help these regions and so on and so forth. And so what motivated me was to really understand that how big is this dependency, right? Like before you understand the problem, I, I find it a bit like, uh, I mean, I should not use the word, but I find it a bit absurd that your people are throwing solutions without really understanding the depth of the problem. So that was the motivation. Uh, and so I basically first conceptualized what is called dependency. And so the dependency is about jobs, dependency is about revenues, dependency is about cooking fuel that people collect and scavenge in some of these coal-bearing areas. Dependency is about industrial fuel. Dependency is about corporate social responsibility or CSR spending and so on and so forth. So I conceptualized this dependency and then I collected six large data sets using basically right to information RTI Act applications. Um, and I had to file a few bunch of uh, first appeals, you know, because first they rejected it and then I had to file an appeal and so on. Uh, but in the end, I was... I managed to get these six data sets and I quantified direct and indirect jobs, uh, CSR spending, district mineral fund revenues, and coal pensioners, right? There are almost like now almost uh, six lakh coal pensioners. And in 10 years, there's projections that it may become almost, you know, 10 lakh and so on. So I, I basically collected all this data at a district level because the impacts will be really high on districts. Um, and then came up with this really interesting result that it seems that almost 40% of Indian districts have some kind of coal dependency. Uh, although dependency really varies. I mean, for some districts, it's really, really low among this 40%. But for some, it's extremely high. Right? Like, you know, you have like more than a lakhs of jobs in one district, more like 50,000 pensioners in another district. But the key conclusion was that dependency really varies from district to district. And so the big conclusion, again, is that when you create any plans, you can't have one consistent plan for all districts because the dependency is really different. Uh, so, yeah, that that is kind of the four chapters of my dissertation. I think I took a long time, but that essentially, I think, sets up any further questions you have on this. Oh, absolutely, it does. Uh, before we move forward, I must tell that similar conversation I had with him and that is uh, this that conversation had given me headline for my story that we published on his dissertation recently, uh, which said that almost forty percent of India's districts uh, have some form of coal dependency, and the headline goes like that only. Yeah, but one thing I also wanted to tell uh, it's another anecdote. Uh, what I have really liked in Sandeep's work throughout his journalism and research work now is his use of RTI and. Uh, RTI has been kind of uh, something very close to me because before I became a journalist in 2005, 
2003 and 4 i have worked in the, with a couple of uh, national ngos who were working to get the national india's national uh, rga law passed so that has been one subject that is very close to my heart always and when i see the use of proper use of rti and uh, somebody using it so productively it really really makes me very happy i can't tell joy because all these years since become even after becoming a journalist i have been uh, trying to help people to get to file rtis and in fact uh, just before we started recording this po- podcast uh, uh, i got a call from one of the ntpc workers who wanted to file an rti to get the annual report so yes uh, that is the only thing i want to so going with your you know explanation about your research i have this one question which i wanted to understand when we talk about jobs uh, direct jobs both from coal and renewable sector like even if we may end up creating more jobs or we may not uh, with renewable there is a basic difference i understand in the kind of jobs that the renewable sector uh, offers and uh, the coal the fossil fuel the coal sector offers and there is also uh, apart from that basic difference it is also the facilities that comes with the, those kind of jobs so a coal worker gets a lot of social sector social benefits whether it is in terms of health whether it is in terms of pension but uh, and they have unions which can demand their uh, rights but when we are looking at staying at say 450 gigawatt of renewable power by 2030 which is next 9 years we are not even talking about that even even when you know that has been one huge issue in countries like us where the elections are fought on issues like having a union in renewable sector which the president biden promised so how do you look at this mismatch or how do you look at this whole debate about the renewable and coal sector jobs if i if i have made myself clear Yeah yeah i mean i think that's an excellent question so yeah i mean i agree that coal sector is probably one of the most unionized sectors in india right like it's a, it's uh, it's the coal india you know which is the world's largest coal mining company uh, and it's nearly 100% unionized and you have really strong five unions which represent five largest political parties in the country from bjp to you know the smallest cpm so coal sector unions are really strong you know they're deeply embedded um, they still hold lot of power although over the years their power has sort of declined but it is one of the last frontiers of large scale union uh, in india even though this fact is less appreciated by people who don't cover this sector but it is a fact that they're really well unionized now in terms of renewables i am not aware of any union i mean it could be that i don't know uh, but even if something exists it may be a isolated sort of union here and there and and the reason for that i mean if you think about the renewable generation most of the jobs are in construction right if you want to install a large scale solar plant or if you want to install wind power most of the jobs are temporary construction jobs for the first sort of like two years or three years or one year and so you have this splurge of you know sort of workers who come who, who set up solar plant um, and then move on so the scope of unionization is less uh, there after you have done that you don't need many people you're only like looking at very few number of people who Uh, run the show there and you need some security guards some cleaners and some engineers and so on so it's really hard to unionize so that by nature it's difficult that's number one 
The number two point with renewables is that it's largely a private sector. Although NTPC and others have right now entered the renewable space, but it's it's dominated by private companies who have traditionally not encouraged unionization. So this difference in the way the two sectors are structured makes these jobs uh, sort of like completely different apples and oranges. One is, you know, pensionable, full-time, you know, completely unionized public sector jobs versus like largely private sector, non-unionized, sort of like, uh, you know, like uh, we don't know much about the what kind of social security it offers and so on. I think a little bit more research is required into the kinds of social security measures or whatever is offered in the renewable space. But, you know, uh, it's basically a private, private company run sector. So with that being the difference, you know, my studies, and that is the limitation of my study and many of the just transition studies, is that I look at job numbers, not so much job quality. Because once you look at job quality, I think that will make a huge difference. I think a coal worker's job may or may not be comparable to, you know, a person who works for Coal India is like absolutely not comparable to somebody who's working sort of in in a renewable setting. Although maybe if you are a higher management or something, that's different. But if you're comparing blue collar to blue collar in both industries, I don't, I don't think it's comparable. I think a blue collar worker in, in a coal industry in NTPC or Coal India is much better off perhaps than renewables. But I will add a caveat that there much more research is required from a renewable side uh, to really understand uh, if if some of what I'm saying is true. Uh, this is all based on anecdotal evidence, but uh, I think if if those jobs were really attractive, we would know by now. A very valid argument indeed. Uh, and during our stories also, that was one of the questions we tried to explore. So I'm just uh, asking one more follow-up on that. Can energy transition actually be just until and unless the rights of people involved in the renewable energy sector are ensured? Or just like many other sectors, we are like, we'll move forward with this whole happiness that, you know, we are cleaning the environment and uh, thing. And uh, while ignoring the rights of such people who are going to be involved across the country or for the sector. I think it's, Mayank, you're asking really an impressive question. So, so there's two school of thoughts here. It's, and it's not an India story. I mean, this is sort of across academia that I have seen about this topic. There's two really school of thoughts. One says climate change is the biggest problem, right? Like it, it is sort of like the biggest problem the world is facing. We have to deploy really fast, least cost deployment, right? Like bid the cheapest renewables just deploy, right? We cannot think about jobs and other stuff. Those are core benefits. Uh, but you sort of deploy and deploy and deploy, and this is really, really important that we make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so that you know they start to displace fossil fuels. And so that that's line of thought doesn't care. I mean, or cares, but sort of like justice is second to them they think about justice in terms of climate justice, which is sort of like, you know, we have to make sure that communities don't suffer due to the impacts of climate change. And so renewable deployment is the, you know, the most important thing. The second school of thought is that, you know, as we move 
to new sources. We don't want to create more inequalities. We don't want to sort of create more injustices that fossil fuel industries have done in the past. And so this is sort of an ongoing debate. The the big pressure, the big externality or sort of the big pressure here is we have to do things fast to, to address climate change. So I don't know which line of thought will win. But in India's case, I mean, anyway, the least cost model is winning, right? Like people are bidding cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. It's not so much about, I mean, people will say it's about jobs and stuff, you know, there's co-benefits and stuff. But at the end of the day, everybody is just bidding like two rupees, two and a half rupees. And the whole motivation is sort of cheap power, cheap deployment so that we can displace fossil fuels. So I'm not sure how to ensure this justice, but very much, I think, within the broad just transition framing, we have to think about land issues, for example. Like, you know, you don't want to, and Mayank, you have covered this topic extensively about land, uh, you know, what happens to renewable deployment and land and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, the lens of just transition and my own thinking has evolved. I used to focus on just fossil fuel workers, but now I think more in terms of winners and losers. Like, you want to mitigate the losers, right? You know, there'll be many winners of transition, you know, healthy communities, better water, clean electricity, and so on. But there'll be many losers of transition. One has to understand both the categories of losers, but also the scale of people who are losing and try to create policies to mitigate some of those losses. So yeah, I don't have a perfect answer for that, but that's sort of my conceptual thinking of this topic. So this actually word that you just used in your answer, cheap, actually stuck with me because I'm cheaply plugging all my stories that I have done on the subject. But yes, uh, what I wanted to understand also from you is this, when we look at like your research is absolutely very comprehensive. I have loved reading it and it actually given me a lot of ideas to work on for more stories. But there is one thing which I, which constantly, you know, uh, impacts me is this, when we say just transition, we very happily talk about clean energy. But clean energy has a lot of limitations and uh, clean energy has a lot of issues to be dealt with when we are talking about uh, clean supply chain per, uh, per se. Or we, so for example, my plans for electric mobility, my plans for renewable power, which will help my environment or my country's environment may trigger a lot of work, a lot of mining, a lot of conflicts in other countries. For example, India's clean energy revolution requires a lot of materials, a lot of minerals, which are not even mined in India. So ultimately, our clean energy revolution will end up displacing env- uh, communities or hurting environment or polluting the water sources in other countries across the world, whether it is like some, some country in Latin America, Australia, China, wherever it will end up hurting communities and environment there. Basically, what I want to ask is how how, how do you look at that uh, issue as a context when we talk about just transition? And also, if you just can throw a little light on uh, while you were doing this study, because, you know, that's the general habit of reporters. When they finish their work, uh, they generally feel that, oh, I could have also used this as part of my of my work or something like that. So is there any anything that you feel that was a limitation while you were doing this dissertation? And yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, so to your point, I think world will need a lot of critical minerals, right? Like um, a lot of it currently is coming from polysilicon, is coming from Xinjiang. Um, and there's lots of allegations of human rights abuse. And uh, some people also say it's genocide. Information is hard to get. You know, there's a lot of allegations. And, and so a lot of this clean energy re- revolution is really hinging on uh, you know, some of the injustices around the world. Um, I don't think there is a clear-cut answer of how to deal with that. At the same time, deploy cheap renewables, which is sort of the focus. Um, so I, I guess, you know, justices have many forms. You know, it, it varies spatially. It varies temporally. Like today, something which is sort of a great renewables may not be great after 20 years when you have to dispose them off and, you know, uh, and so on. So it will vary spatially. There's layers of justice. Uh, you know, there is distributive justice. I'm going a bit theoretical here, but there is also procedural justice. Can you, are you deploying renewables by talking to people? Like, you know, have you taken local communities into sort of confidence or you're just going and deploying? Or there is restorative justice, right? You know, you have sort of like, you know, already degraded that land and you're degrading it more. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that it's not clean energy revolution is not necessarily fully clean per se. There's lots of issues that one has to resolve. And we have actually not really started this revolution, even though people, you know, love to say that, you know, uh, like we are, I mean, we are deploying massively, but fossil fuel cells dominate global energy systems, right? Over eighty percent. So once we really scale up in the twenties and in the twenty thirties and so on, a lot of these issues will emerge. And so I think we as researchers and reporters, it's our duty to sort of highlight some of those social issues because you you don't want to be in a situation where you're solving one big climate problem, but creating hundreds and thousands of, you know, maybe millions of injustices around the world. I think that would be my role going forward, uh, not just with Just Transition, but sort of any topic you take, you have to think more socially, more broadly, thinking about losers and winners. How do you manage different expectations? Because it's very easy to meet climate targets using models. Right. And one of my studies also relied on models because it's basically, you know, it's like a tool. You sort of set your objective function um, and you say, OK, you know, this is the carbon budget. We have to deploy this much. You make a bunch of assumptions, say that solar price in 2030 will be this much. You make assumptions about coal. You make assumptions about carbon tax. You say that India will have this much carbon tax. Some of that may have no connection to the political realities. But you make those assumptions because they give you some pathways into the future. You're thinking about pathways. Uh, we can talk about whether these models are useful or not, but that's a different debate. But, you know, it's easy to do all these things in a justice. And I mean, these models don't even think about justice, to be frank. You know, their whole focus is optimal least cost sort of thinking. And when you do that, it's easy, but real life is messy, right? You know. Um, it's going to be really complicated. I mean, in already in 90 gigawatts, I think some of the land issues, uh, even our previous guests had talked about it. And that's one question actually I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, you have done reporting about land 
renewables and land and so on and so forth. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Uh, but it'll be great to hear your views on like what has been your experience thinking about justice and sort of more specifically about land issues around renewables and so on. So you're turning the tables. Okay, interesting. Uh, I'll be very frank with you, Sandeep. Uh, we have done, say, over 60, 65 stories over the last one year on this subject. And one good section has been devoted to uh, at Mongabi India, we have devoted to looking at the clean energy aspects of the renewable energy, that how clean actually they are. And uh, to be honest, one thing that we have discovered is the government quickly and swiftly moving towards huge uh, renewable parks and uh, the stepping of big corporates. We have already seen example. It is actually leading to uh, a lot of land and environmental conflicts. So it's just that the perpetrator has changed but the community and the environment which was facing injustice, whether it was the hand of coal mining or issues related to that, they still face the issue uh, or they still face injustice. Like there are several cases I've, I found that are going, in, uh, going on in courts right now across the country where communities are complaining that the land which has been taken over by the government for this huge solar park and then given to a private player is basically a land which is their community land or it is a unique ecosystem. So what governments may claim in the papers as a degraded wasteland may not be so ultimately in, the, in actual terms. So there are so many cases going on uh, across the country and that's a very sad part because when you talk about a sunshine sector, when you talk about a sector which is go- coming up so fast and everything, everybody's going gaga about it, these are small these are uh, issues that needs to be dealt with these are issues that needs to be addressed and that is one thing which actually led us to uh, write several stories on that and in fact a couple of more are coming in the next couple of weeks but yes this is one thing and absolutely it is a trend that you said in 2020s and 2030s in the next 15 20 years whether it is about the waste coming from the renewable sector, whether it is about the land issues, whether it is about the impact on wildlife, uh, avifauna, all these issues are going to uh, blow up. And uh, I don't want to be somebody making bad predictions. I don't want to be nostalgic or anything. But yeah, it it is going to make a huge impact. It is going to, uh, when we say that climate change is going to impact such huge investment across the country in different regions, if we don't uh, listen to research, I think it is a similar thing going to play out with the renewable sector in in India because the way it is just being pushed down the road. I I remember there was this project uh, recently which is being pushed by Gujarat in in one of the most uh, ecologically sensitive areas. I think it is near Kuj and uh, if I remember it right, yes. And it is a 60,000 megawatt, uh, 60,000 or 40,000 megawatt project. Sorry, 41,000 megawatt project uh, in 60,000 hectare area, which is size of nearly like the size of Mumbai, Mumbai region. And imagine that much land is going and uh, you can imagine the kind of impact it is going to have uh, on people and communities. You don't need to be a scientist to understand that. So I think it is playing out. Uh, it is going to be, beca- it is going to become a very dangerous point. And uh, it will lead to a lot of conflicts, for sure. And I must remind you, you forgot to uh, answer my limitations, uh, questions on limitations of the study. I will not let you go. You have to answer that. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so apologies. Like every study, every dissertation has multiple limitations. I think there are some broader limitations. The broader limitation, and partly it was because of COVID that I couldn't do it, but you know, I can't just blame COVID and get away with it. One of the big limitations sort of of my uh, dissertation is that I did not systematically talk to workers. You know, I mean, although I have spent a lot of time in coal communities before, but in the process of my dissertation, I could not travel. I had travel plans to come to India. I also wanted to do some field work in Alberta here in Canada, uh, but I could not do it because of COVID. But uh, so that, you know, not incorporating, systematically incorporating workers' views I think is one big limitation of my whole dissertation. I think there are many other sort of data limitations. You know, I I could not, for example, for the India socioeconomic dependency work, I could not collect data on informal jobs. Now, that I think is a really important uh, piece of research going forward because unlike in the Western countries, India is a large informal sector. There's lots of millions of people, although it's not properly quantified yet, millions of people who scavenge coal, right? When when coal mining is, uh, you know, like uh, on, on the sidelines of coal mining or when coal mining is, you know, abandoned, uh, people go and scavenge coal, people, you know, uh, extract that coal um, and then use that coal for, you know, cooking purposes or selling in the open market and and so on and so forth. And this is, you know, an underrepresented stakeholder in this conversation. So I think that in the future, one has to think about how to quantify their numbers, how to understand their dependency. And honestly, like once we quantify that, some of my results might change, right? Because, you know, some districts may have more of these informal workers, compared to others and so on. So that, again, is a very specific uh, data limitation. Of course, the modeling chapters has hundreds of assumptions, like every other modeling uh, chapter. I would I would not do justice by saying that there are no assumptions. There's lots of co- assumptions about cost. There's lots of assumptions about, like, you know, average employment factors and so on and so forth. But, I mean, we have been, I have tried to be as transparent as possible about, you know, in my, in my end of my dissertation, I've listed as many limitations as possible. Uh, but yeah, like uh, that's why I always say that don't take the exact numbers seriously, but take the trends seriously. Because even when you have limitations, you understand the scale, for example. You know, you understand that coal mining has much larger socioeconomic impact than power plant rather than you know, the number I, I am projecting is 80%, but it could be 75, it could be 85. But you can see, clearly see that coal mining is bigger. So there are a bunch of limitations, which are also an opportunity for more research going forward. Because, you know, you do some research tomorrow, somebody else will quantify something else. You add on and you build. That's how sort of science or social science research works. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of limitations. I just gave a few examples, just to give a flavor of the kinds of limitations I have. And do mark my words when I say I've been writing on the subject and I've been a reporter for the last 16 years. So when I say this, uh, a good researcher or person whose intentions are clear can be actually understood from the fact that what Sandeep just mentioned, 
that at the end of his dissertation, he mentions a lot of areas that needs to be worked on, that needs further research. So if any research is actually, is actually mentioning, is telling, give credit to that person because that person is being very honest with his work. That person is being very honest with the subject. So yes, uh, kudos to you for that. And uh, what I also wanted to now ask you, I want to take this to a little hypothetical, philosophical, or in a different mode. We keep talking about just transition. We have understood what, thank you so much for explaining it in such clear words. Do you think that there is a political will? Do you think that there is money for this? Because like, you know, as we talk about climate change, climate change finance, this is another of that, uh, I'll not say oxymoron, but yes, it is another of those great words, which is now in the regular lexicon. But do you actually think that there is, and just very brutal uh, truth, where, do you actually think that there is political will and uh, money available for uh, just transition? Again, a really interesting question. So coming to the political will part, right? I mean, it's very clear from the policymakers in India. Nobody's talking. Look, at least at least policymakers who matter, they're not talking about transitioning away from coal. I mean, India is still adding more coal-fired power plants. I mean, the numbers may vary, but I think about 60 gigawatts of coal power plants are still either under construction or reconstruction stage. I don't know what will happen after this round of uh, more coal capacity. I don't think coal use in India has peaked. I don't think anyone, at least anyone who matters at the government level or anybody else is really saying transition away from coal. Uh, What we could really see is that one can talk about peaking coal use uh, rather than saying full transition. So I don't think that we don't know yet if there is political will or not, because that stage has not reached yet. And I mean, to be fair, you know, India India has massive power requirements. And, and so there is, you know, even within the research community, there is a debate whether to what degree should India rely on coal and for how long. So to conclude this point, what I'm trying to say is that there is no like overarching, I mean, there may be some plants closing here and there, but there is no overarching transition away from coal. So we don't know in terms of political will that once that stage reaches where you don't need more capacity or you you can start to talk about phasing out, what kind of political will will be there. And some of that will actually be shaped by the response of coal communities, you know, if Jharkhand starts to protest about a coal phase out or a Telangana starts to protest, that will feed back into whether we have more political. This is a, this you know, jobs is a very contentious political issue. We have seen around the world, right? Like from US to everywhere. It, it's a, it, it'll, this will become a really deeply contentious political issue going forward. So to answer that question, I'm not sure in terms of, moving away from coal, whether there is political will or not. Although there is massive renewable plants, which shows some kind of political will, right? It really shows actually political will to move in the clean energy direction, but not not so sure if you can link it back to sort of like transitioning away from coal. So that's the other part. The money, the finance part is fascinating, right? I mean, we always talk about clean energy deployment and the finance that is required 
around it, which is well and good. And of course, we need lots of money uh, to actually address climate change. We need we need massive investments in renewables. You know, 450 gigawatts is this decade's target. But, you know, even in the future, we'll continue to need more finance to deploy renewables. But nobody is really talking about how to manage the just transition finance aspect. And to give you an example, and I think I talked about this in the last episode also, like, I mean, Coal India has about $15 billion that it contributes in salaries and uh, and in various things, US dollars. Um, and so, like, if a Coal India dies, and I'm not saying it will die now, you know, or like, you know, when you move away from coal and if Coal India doesn't manage to diversify, like, how do you manage that finance? Who is going to fund uh, some of the aspects of transition? I think we we are not there yet. So the research is also not out there. One cannot provide a number of how much money would be required for all this. Uh, but I think that that conversation has to start. And that conversation will start now because a lot of groups are now very interested in this topic. And I think more and more research will happen. More and more quantification will happen. And some of the things that are, for example, quantified, one can apply to IEA net zero targets. And then you can say, oh, in 2030, we will have these many workers and these many people will lose jobs. So what would be their salary and so on and so forth. And then you can start to quantify the scale of money that is required to make sure that A, either there's status quo or B, you actually provide just transition and so on and so forth. So I am partially answering both your questions, but I think that is where we are at. You know, India has not reached a stage where coal is declining. So the just transition is more like these things take a lot of time, right? Like you cannot have a state like Jharkhand diversify when coal starts to decline. You have to plan some of those processes now. And so from a research point of view, this is a stage where you learn about these things. You inform policy. You start that process now. And then once you quantify more and more, you would know the money requirement. And some of that money can come from domestic sources, but some of the money has to come from international sources. I don't think India will be able to afford everything sort of on its own, managing both the clean energy and the just transition aspects. That actually... uh takes me to one interesting uh, conversation I had and uh, an issue that we covered in another one of another of my stories, which was about using a lot of money coming from, uh, say, uh, different CES, uh, DMF and other sources and using it to like, because as you said, we have not peaked on coal. So probably another 20, 25, 30, 40 years, whatever time, nobody, nobody of us knows. Absolutely. Yeah. So using that money to create long-term assets to at least start working on that long-term just transition uh, in those areas. So that is one thing that uh, has actually interested, uh, evoked a lot of interest in my work. And uh, I'm really looking forward to explore more of that. Uh, But yeah, that is one interesting area that I want to understand and uh, I wanted to point out. I also wanted you to ask you, uh, when you have been researching and you have been reading a lot of reports, and we have recently seen some of the India's biggest corporates uh, joining the clean energy bandwagon. So how do you look at this whole uh, mining industry? Whether How do you look at this whole coal mining industry uh, being prepared for just transition? And is that even a thing on their mind? Is that even on their radar? Uh, the short answer is no. 
like I said, the coal has not peaked yet, the coal use. So Coal India still has targets to double its production, right? So from 700 something to, uh, you know, almost like a billion. Uh, so not double, but sort of like really increase its production. Now we have auctions of coal mines as well. So uh, essentially government wants to double or at least like substantially, at least 50% increase coal use. So the transition as a topic, just transition as a topic, has really come from researchers to the discourse right now. It, it's the research community that is talking about it. It's people, you know, iForest and some of the people like me and others who are talking about this topic. Just transition has been a very big topic globally. Wherever transitions have started, decline of coal in US or Europe and so on. And so it's become a contentious issue. Lots of money has gone in to retrain and take care of workers and so on. So the international agencies that are in these countries are funding just transition work in India because they see that this could become a really contentious topic going forward. And so a lot of just transition discourse is really coming from global, both global sort of like funding agencies, researchers, and it's penetrating different discourses. But from a mining, as far as I've had hundreds of conversations with people with Coal India and so on, I don't think anybody has even thought about this topic, to be very frank. But this discourse is increasing. I mean, in the last five years, like in 2015, not one person would know what just transition is. Or, I mean, obviously some people would know, but essentially very few. But now you see, you know, even I have seen coal secretary use this word and many others are sort of starting to use this. At least the vocabulary is coming there, but, uh, and this is only going to grow as we go forward. I actually have a question for both of you. I really tried hard to just be a listener here. Uh, consider this as an audience question. Uh, and this comes from just my observation. Uh, my observation purely based on the fact that since the time I've started writing, I've been listening about take line of coal. Uh, when you talk about just transition, why are we facing the responsibility on conventional energy sources or conventional companies for that matter, conventional policies as well. You know, mineral fund will go away. Oh, what will happen to these coal bearing areas? I have a problem with that and I'll tell you why. Uh, my problem is that all the money, uh, the future is green energy. And what one thing that green energy gets away with is anything in the name of green energy. So be it land, be it killing birds, uh, be it transmission uh, network or anything, it's the green energy, wind, solar plants, uh, batteries, uh, the impact that, uh, you know, uh, disposing of these batteries will have uh, maybe 10 years later in India, but they will have an impact on ecology. So do you not, I'll want to ask, a view from both of you that this responsibility of just transition of saving our ecology or you know giving more employment uh, having a whole supply chain should lie now on green energy rather than on a fuel that that is tend to go away in in another 10 years i i can i can start this is this is one of those questions where like may, i should not have been here but this is such a such a powerful question uh, I think, I mean, so let me answer that question in two parts. I think, Shreya, like the first part is theoretically, I think 
they could have some responsibility. You know, they should have some responsibility because, you know, you are you're talking that this is a sustainable, clean, green energy, right? So some of this transition money or transition sort of planning, uh, they could choose to invest in a state like Jharkhand, set up manufacturing plants and so on. So that might take care of some of these just transition aspects. But again, everything is coming down to least cost here. So at a theoretical level, I don't disagree. I mean, we at a philosophical level, sure, I think... Some of this just responsibility, people talk about how the world will be sustainable when we transition away from coal. So when you think about sustainability in absolute terms, perhaps some of that sustainability can also transfer to people and areas which decline. So I agree at a theoretical level, but at a practical, more practical level, I don't see any company, Adani, or like, I mean, you name it, even NTPC going and investing in a state like Jharkhand, right? They will invest where they find ease of doing business or, you know, where there's already like good transmission infrastructure or whatever, they'll make their business plans based on profit. And so profit, while clean energy and green energy is all well and good, but at the end of the day, this is a business proposition for many. Even though they may have ESG plans and, you know, they may have all sorts of PR around this, but at the end of the day, this is a huge business opportunity. And so, at a theoretical level, I can see one talking to them about it and they may even saying, yeah, sure. But at a practical level, at the end of the day, it's driven by profit. So I'm not quite convinced that they will play a role. Uh, and so everything is going back to our traditional same old coal Indias of the world and, you know, like companies who have operated on those difficult areas, who have operated and not that coal India is pure and, you know, it's, it has its own set of problems. It has, it has not taken care of the environment. It has led to unsustainable mining and so on, but it has also, it is a welfare state, you know, it provides schools and so on. So, yeah. So I think theoretically I agree, but practically I don't think it will happen. I have several comments to be honest. A couple of points, for example, one, uh, in a country such as India, or for that matter, any other country, everything is driven from politics. And uh, if we just uh, live in silos and if we just compartmentalize, we can say that renewable energy industry, it's not renewable energy industry. It is the system. And when we talk about the system driving the whole thing, I think there is a learning from this whole, uh, our experience with coal and the way we are moving ahead with renewables. And the reality that Shreya has asked this question means there is a huge conversation around it already, whether it is about unions in the sector, whether it is about the impact of renewable energy on land, the impact of renewable energy on environment, the justice with the community, uh, communities there. Uh, so this question is already there. And it's a very valid argument that why not now? Why shouldn't they? And one part, San, uh, Sandeep has already answered that uh, it's a low cost model. And the companies, to be fair to the companies on one part, I generally don't like to be a uh, you know, take sides with the business. But there's one simple thing that we also need to remember. A lot of companies which went for this low-cost model went into auctions, got auctions, uh, you know, got clearances in auction. Now, the states where they, uh, you know, went into contracts, those states are renegotiating contracts or, you know, forcing the companies to abandon the projects and go for, uh, uh, like, restart the auction process. So, 
in such a scenario, how uh, how do we expect or how can we expect the companies to uh, lower their margins and then also contribute to the welfare? So somewhere the whole that's why I said that it's a whole that's a, it's a whole system of politics attached to this energy, which is basically driving this and which will make whether the issue of reunions or whether the issue of uh, these green energy companies or green energy business contributing to the welfare work. Because ultimately, if we are going to drive the whole work by the model of low cost and uh, giving electricity either as free or as at the lowest co- uh, possible cost, the companies are not its business. So companies are not going to decrease their margins. Uh, they may just by a small uh, extent, but they are not going to do that in a la- in a larger context. And if they're not going to do it, that money that we are talking about, which it comes in terms of coal and other fossil fuel-based industries, that's not going to come. So it's a very valid demand. I think we as, the, like, especially I'm talking about myself, me as a reporter may not be able to think uh, in such a big context, but it's time. It should strike a debate. I think there is a debate already in progress at some places. But the debate needs to go broad-based. And I think there's a huge space for uh, this conversation around this issue that is there a way that the green energy industry can contribute to uh, or carry forward this mantle from the coal-based industry and provide that, uh, you know, extra extra push to the communities or provide that cushion to the communities or that fund that can come from them, whether in a cooperative manner or whatever. It could be any model discovered. So that's all open for debate. And one more thing, uh, we have been writing on this. Please read our stories on this because we have been writing a lot of stories on these issues. Sandeep, now I just wanted to, uh, we talked about the social aspect. We talked about all these issues. I just wanted to ask one uh, one more uh, question that has been on my mind. It's about the impact of uh, the whole coal sector on the health of people. That is something that requires a lot of studies. Some people claim that these studies have been done. Some people have been working on these issues. Have you dealt with uh, this issue? And uh, how, how do you look at what? How, how What is your take on this? I mean, so I have not personally gone and done like academic scientific studies on this. But, you know, as a reporter, I have traveled to these areas. And I mean, there's no question. Even... I don't think even a coal India, like anybody honest would go and say that, you know, it's it's like clean and green there. Uh, at least they are not claiming it in that industry. But look, the water is dirty. You can argue about the scale of whether it's to what degree, you know, there's pollution, there's all sorts of environment, there's land subsidence, which is a huge issue, in, especially in the Rani Ganj, Jharia area, where sort of when... Uh, coal fires are there. Uh, And so there's lots of different kinds of health and environmental issues. And absolutely, there's no question about it. And from time to time, people come up with those studies linking them to air pollution, deaths, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm not an expert on that, but I can tell you from anecdotal experience that people really suffer from these environmental and health impacts uh, in these extraction areas. Uh, there's no there's no question about that. But at the same time, that you know the dependency is there, uh, and we are talking about moving away from this, you know, away from this source. So while people have suffered, many people have suffered. Some of them have jobs, and they suffer, but they at least have livelihood and some kind of sustainable sort of like 
ongoing sustainable livelihood and so on. Uh, so the question, the central question is already injustice has happened in some of those areas. And so when you move away from these sources, yes, a little bit of air will improve, uh, but people have suffered and you don't want them to suffer even more in this clean energy world. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so my thinking is that I think anybody who denies environmental or health impacts in coal mining areas, I think they're lying. I think there is serious impacts. At the same time, we should recognize the complexity of the problem, that it does provide jobs and revenues and so on. So a lot of people rely on this uh, sector for their livelihoods. It's a large industrial sector. You know, it has lots of, it's an ecosystem, as I define in my dissertation. Um, so as we move to new systems, we have to make sure that people are not left behind. You don't create more injustices in these areas. So that's sort of how I think about this. Thank you, Philippe. Uh, that brings me to, me to the last question. Otherwise, people will say that, you know, this is an injustice to them to, uh, you know, bore to them for to, for such a long uh, uh, episode. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, what now? Because the sooner you get come out with a new paper, new work, the sooner I can write more stories on that. So, exactly. So, what next now? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I finished my PhD and now I'm working with a large uh, think tank in which is Washington DC based think tank called Center for Strategic and International Studies. In fact, I'm continuing my work because this topic has sort of really uh, taken, you know, the energy community or, you know, the the climate and energy community by force and so Many groups are now working on different aspects of just transition. So uh, the World Bank's Climate Investment Funds and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, they have a collaboration and they have started what is called the Just Transition Initiative. And so this year uh, I, I joined that initiative and I'm now a senior researcher working in this initiative. And this year we are doing a study comparing Jharkhand, which is obviously India's most coal-intensive, coal-dependent state, and Pumalanga, which is South Africa's most coal-intensive uh, state. Uh, and so I've been doing a lot of interesting research on that. Uh, it should come out before COP, before the Glasgow COP, but there are lots of similarities and differences between these two places. And so we are trying to understand a bunch of things including how can these two places diversify their economy? Um, how can, you know, environmental remediation, so cleanup of mines and power plants become sort of a source of employment, but also, you know, help attract uh, industries for diversification. We are also thinking about, like, who are the key stakeholders? We often, uh, you know, there's a tendency that, you know, there is more wise to researchers and people like me or people sitting in Delhi, but the actual stakeholders on the ground never, you know, are able to voice their concerns uh, and they are not part of this just transition thinking. So we're doing a mapping exercise of identifying who are the key stakeholders on the ground in these two places. And so all in all, this is going to be a very interesting comparative study between Pumalanga, which is their most coal-intensive province in South Africa, and Jharkhand in India. And, and essentially, the research will culminate around October, November, and then we'll come up with a big report on that. And I call dibs on that report. 
<laughs> no, no. But to be honest, like, I'll just add one thing uh, before I hand it over back to Shreya. Uh, you know, last year when we started this series for Manga Media, when we started Just Transitions as a series, as a subject, honestly telling you, for the first two, three, four months or uh, the first quarter of that series, I actually struggled to explain the concept to people. I used to, for like any call that I used to make to researchers or people or policymakers, I used to at least make it a point that I first explained to them the international concept of just transitions and the expanded concept that we were taking in our stories and everything, the whole setting the context thing. And uh, the way the topic or the way the issue has, you know, exploded in the last one year uh, is, is absolutely mind-boggling. Now, there are organization after organization after group after group after researchers that is involved in energy transition or just transitions per se and it is very heartening to see everybody you know, like the, the like the term actually becoming very popular and uh, just being a little greedy i i do like to take a little credit for doing that but yes it is it is very heartening to see the subject going places and it is very heartening that we have been talking about it and I hope to see more work on uh, coming from you and your friends in the academy industry, academia, and uh, to write more on that. Thank you so much. And thank you, Shreya, for giving me the opportunity to come and have this lovely conversation. It, uh, it actually, you know, it, uh, made me remember a lot of uh, my conversations over the last one year, over the last 10 years with him. So thank you so much. And you people have been doing this great show. And I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mayank. It was just really amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much, Mayank and Sandeep. It was such an enjoyable conversation. So much that I couldn't help myself but pitch in. I hope the dialogue that you both have started, Sandeep with your research and Mayank with your special coverage, ignites changes in policy making and investment decisions of stakeholders. This brings us to the end of our special. We will be bringing out more such great conversations regularly. If our listeners have any suggestions for our future episode, do reach out to us on our social media handles. Thank you.